0: Church families, we continue to worship this morning. I'm going to encourage you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 through 7 specifically. Just this last week I was in a meeting and someone leaned over to me and said, have you seen this new movie? And it hadn't been a movie that I heard much about. I've seen just a trailer or two for it. But it's a movie, of uh, a biopic of C.S. Lewis's conversion. It's entitled The Most Reluctant. Convert the untold story of C.S. Lewis. I've uh, since read some really good reviews of it and look forward to over the holidays uh, streaming that and, and watching that movie. But it tells a story that is a compelling story. It's the story of, of an atheist, literature professor at Harvard, and then later in his career at, ha- at Cambridge who undertook a, a marvelous conversion to Christianity. And we know Clyde Staples Lewis, C.S. Lewis, largely through his, his prolific writings, that still to this day, 60 years later, are so compelling, so clear that they're still read. Uh, there are many families like, like Danielle and myself as we read the Chronicles of Narnia, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and the other six entries into the Chronicles of Narnia that has this, this wonderful expression uh, through allegory of the truths of Christianity, the truths of what Jesus has done for us. Many of you have benefited from his apologetic work, uh, Mere Christianity, screw Tape Letters, uh, The Problem of Pain. There, there are many books that, that still today, if you walk into a Books of Millions, still today, if you walk into a Barnes and Noble and you walk over to the Christian section, you will still see these books sold 60 years later. It's remarkable. One of the reasons we read him is because he's just so clear, so compelling. In mere Christianity, he is writing about a central question, the question of who is Jesus? Now, it's one of his most famous books, if not the most famous book of the 20th century for Christians to read. But it comes out of a, a unique historical background. Uh, Lewis was commissioned by the BBC during World War II to have a series of fireside chats on the radio to the British public. They, they're in the midst of World War II. There's tremendous uncertainty. There, there's tremendous angst. And out of all the things that Lewis could uh, speak to them about that has become composed of mere Christianity, he doesn't say seven helpful ways that you can get through uncertainty. None of that. In mere Christianity, none of this self-actualization, trying to overcome the difficulties, none of that. Actually, Lewis, in the midst of uncertainty, pinpoints the, the most important question to be able to ask and, even more importantly, how you answer it. Who is, who was Jesus? Your Christianity, in Lewis's words, gives us this really helpful declaration of how we can answer that question. You see it on the screen. I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him being Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That's the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any of this patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now it seems to me obvious, Lewis would go on to say, that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend. And consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. These three options. Was Jesus a liar? Was he a lunatic? Or was he Lord? This description is helpful. It it, it comes really at the, uh, the centrality of Christmas. While we celebrate the Advent season, who was Jesus and who is Jesus? How how you answer that question makes all the difference for your life. How you answer that question is the central question to be asked and to be answered. And you know, long before the coming of Jesus, 700 years before that manger scene, there was the prophet of God who also was in the midst of, of military uncertainty. He was also in the midst of this attack that was coming upon him. And in the midst of the Assyrian army, just snarling upon him, encroaching upon uh, Judah and and Jerusalem, Isaiah would, would also point to the hope of a child to be born. And how we answer the question, who was Jesus, who is Jesus, is so clearly given us an answer by Isaiah in chapter 9, verses 6 through 7. Will do this. Here we have Isaiah, approximately 700 years before the coming of Jesus, and in the midst of, of the Assyrian Empire coming upon them, threatening to conquer and to, to haul off the, the residents of, of Judah into captivity. And, and he points forward to, to where hope will be found, not in the military retaliation of of Judah, not in their strength, but rather in in one who will come. Now, is this a mere mortal who is going to come? Well, not from Isaiah's perspective. Listen to the titles. These are the titles that we're taking during Advent as we're preaching the series on Isaiah chapter 9. Last week, we looked at that first title, Wonderful Counselor. Now we come to the second title, Mighty God. Next week, we'll come to Everlasting Father and finally Prince of Peace. Now, note that Isaiah... He has, he has no, no thought of the hope of Judah, the hope in the midst of, of the uncertainty and the darkness of the day, being a mere mortal who's going to come to be a great inspiring teacher. That's not where Isaiah, his hope lies. Actually, it, it is the mighty God who is coming, who is king eternally, who is bringing about, look again at verse 7. He is bringing about justice and righteousness, not just now, but forevermore. Now the question Of Lewis is still a question that's pertinent to this text. Was was Isaiah lying? Was Isaiah a a lunatic? In, In predicting 700 years, it's interesting that out of all the options that we come to with Isaiah, in the midst of the imminent threat of the Assyrian Empire, he says, hey, I've got really good hopeful news for everybody who is listening to me 700 years from now. There will be a child born. There's not a whole lot to gain, is it, for Isaiah to make up this story? It has to be the very inspiration of the Holy Spirit coming upon Isaiah because you know what? It actually happened. What Isaiah predicted, what Isaiah prophesied actually came to pass and split our calendar in half between B.C. and A.D., which has revolutionized the world in which we live in, that no continent on this earth has not been touched by the very message Of the wonderful Counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. There's no doubt. There are many who who see inspiration in Jesus, but don't call Him Lord. I mean, that was true in Jesus' time. It is true in our time. It will be true in every time until He comes as the King of kings and Lord of lords in His second coming. But no doubt that people have looked to Jesus as an inspiring moral teacher. There's probably no more famous example of this than the nonviolent, nonviolent revolutionary there in India, Gandhi. In in opposing the imperialistic empire of Britain in that day, uh, Gandhi he he drew upon the very teachings of Jesus. He drew upon the Sermon on the Mount, and, and he found tremendous inspiration. So much inspiration that it fueled what would revolutionize India in that moment and and, and to come forevermore. And Gandhi saw upon Jesus the the power of his teachings. But notice when, when Gandhi is asked about who Jesus was, notice how he answers that Jesus occupies in my heart the place of, how are we going to answer that, Gandhi? One of the greatest teachers who have had a considerable influence upon my life. But here's the thing, I think Lewis is right, not just for Gandhi, but for all of us here. We're not left with the option for Jesus alone to be just one of the most considerable influences upon our life. We can't take Jesus' teaching in isolation from who he claims to be that would spur on the very birth of the Christian church and the spread of the Christian message. Do you know why hundreds of thousands of people for 2,000 years in the threat of persecution and the threat of danger have died martyrs' death because Jesus was a great God? No. Do you know why hundreds of thousands of people throughout the years have left their home and left their professions and moved to the other sides of the world to live and to share the message, the message of a great moral teacher? No. Do you know why thousands upon thousands of people have in the name of Jesus opened orphanages and hospitals and have pursued justice? Why? Because Jesus was a great guy who said great things. No, no, and no. The claim of Jesus is a claim that is profound, that he claims to be the mighty God, come in the flesh as a baby, as a child. At the very heart of Advent, do not miss who Jesus was and who Jesus is. What is the person of Jesus? This is the central question that is, that is to be answered in Advent, the person of Jesus. Jesus says that he is not merely an example of faith, but rather he is the object of our faith. Jesus claims not to be one way to the Father, but the way to the Father. There's probably no better example. It's more clear and compelling to the person of Jesus than when John in John chapter 1, verse 1, and then later in verse 14 would tell us so clearly who this person of Jesus is. In the beginning was the Word. You see it on the screen. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. I love Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of this in the message. And the, the Word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. And we have seen His glory the glory as of the only son from the father full of grace and truth you fast forward to 14 verses you have our 14 chapters and you have jesus in a conversation with philip in verse 6 of chapter 14 he says i'm the way the truth and the life no one comes to the father except through me if you had known me you would have known my father also from now on do you know him and have seen him from now on do you do know him and have seen him this is staggering what Jesus is saying. He, he's saying to these faithful Jewish men, guess what? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, if you want to see him, look at me. The God of Daniel in the lion den, if you want to see him, look at me. The, the God who, who called the Israelites out of Egypt, who would call through the burning bush Moses to say to Pharaoh, let my people go. If you want to see him, look at me. Staggering claim. So much so that Philip is speaking for the disciples by saying, Lord, show us the Father. And it's enough for us. Like, we want to see this. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long? And you still don't know me, Philip. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? That's what Jesus is claiming here. He is not claiming to be a representative sent from the Father. He is not claiming to be an angelic messenger from the Father. He is claiming that He is God incarnate, God in the flesh, that when you see Him, you see the Father. You read the Gospels. Jesus comes not just as a a mere inspiring teacher to give us a worldview to follow. No, He heals the sick. And more than healing the sick, he will say to those that are sick, hey, you have a greater problem, that is your sin problem, and I will heal that sin problem by forgiving you of your sins. In the midst of the disciples, in this stormy night, where they feel as if the waves are going to to capsize them, it's in that moment that Jesus shows up on the scene. He says, be still to creation itself. Jesus my friends, is not a mere mortal teacher. He is the mighty God. What we're claiming here is at the heart of Christianity. What we're claiming here is confounding and it's staggering. It, it is what Christians for 2,000 years have called the very doctrine of the uh, Holy Trinity. That the Son of God is, is eternally, uh, eternally Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They're of the same essence. What is the father's is the son's. It's one God in three distinct persons here, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, we want to find illustrations, and we want to find analogies that help us be able to kind of wrap our mind around this, and so throughout history for 2,000 years, we've gone to pull out these analogies and these illustrations, thinking to ourselves, well, that's how it is, and so you'll hear people say, well, you got water, and you got steam, and you got ice, sort of like that, or you'll hear people say, well, it's like time, and you have past, and you have present, and you have future, and then you have others say, no, 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 no. You remember St. Patrick, and he's there in Ireland. He's got the three-leaf clover here, and it's sort of like that. And you also have people say, no, 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 no. It's sort of like a, uh, David Eldridge. I'm, I'm a husband to one wife, Danielle. I'm a father to three sons, Hayden, Luke, and Jonathan. I am the son of Jimmy Eldridge and Debbie Eldridge. One David, three roles. Now, here's the thing. All of those illustrations All of those analogies give us a glimmer, they give us a glimpse, but all of them fall strikingly short. All of them have bits actually of heresy that have been condemned by the church. Why? Because what we're describing is beyond our analogies. What we're describing is beyond our illustrations. So when we come to the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, three persons, the uh, uh, Father sending the Son and the Son coming to the earth, we come to this place and we don't try to figure it out so we can get a hundred on a theology test. We bend our knees in worship to a God who is wholly different who is beyond your illustration and beyond my illustration, beyond our analogies. That's not a bad thing. That's the best thing. That what we're describing is a God who is unlike you, unlike me, unlike us. And so all of our illustrations, they fall miserably short. And it leads us to bow our knees in adoration and a worship of a God who is unlike you and me. That's the person of Jesus. But I want you to see here the power of Jesus. This is a a striking word that Isaiah uses to describe the the baby that is going to come 700 years later. It's easy for us to miss this. It's the mighty God. That word mighty is just dripping with irony. It upends all expectations. Uh, He is describing the power and the might and the strength of a baby. I mean, all of that doesn't make sense to us. I mean, there's nothing mighty about a newborn baby. There's nothing strong about a newborn baby. With our three boys throughout the last you know, few years, there's been a movie, a cartoon movie that some of you have seen that's called Boss Baby. And, and the whole premise of the movie is you've got all these little babies walking around and they're all in charge and all these adult kind of conversations that are happening through babies. And, and the hilarity of it is that's not how life is. If you're an uncle or if you're an aunt here in the sanctuary, do you remember what it was when you held your niece or your nephew for the first time? Do you remember when you went to your sister's house? Or do you remember when you went to the hospital room and she, she so gingerly gave you and said, Here is your niece. And you didn't jostle. You were so careful to make sure the head was was pro- placed so gently. You, you don't. There, there's nothing about a nine pound six ounce baby that, that you think is self sufficient. So you gingerly hold this baby in your arms. You know, unless it's like the fourth niece or fifth niece that you have, or or nephew, and, and it's a little bit different there. But that, that for you, you know what I'm saying. And to think that the mighty God was cradled near the very breast of Mary. That the mighty God would be wholly dependent. That the mighty God would be born and and ultimately have for his crib a feeding trough. This is the mystery of Christmas. This is the mystery of the incarnation. This is the mystery of God with us. We say mighty and we we think battle. We think a military parade. We want to show off the strength of our mighty army. Isaiah could relate to that. Many people in our world can relate. That's how we show might. You think might? You get in a boxing ring, and you've got, you've got a boxer going up against his opponent, and he, he gets him into the corner, and it's uppercut after uppercut to, to have a, this barrage of blows that ultimately brings him to submission as he falls to the ground, and he hears the bell. That's might. That's might. And what we're describing here is this powerful, ironic twist that the baby who is going to be born would live a perfect life. And he would hear the bell of defeat and death. Martin Luther, the great German reformer, hundreds of years ago, would talk often about the foolishness of the cross. That that from a human perspective, what we're describing, that victory comes in defeat, is foolishness. That strength comes in weakness, is foolishness. But if you miss this, you you miss the power of the cross. You miss the very reason that Jesus came to this earth. Paul, reflecting upon this in Colossians chapter 2, would describe this very beautifully. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, you, me, us, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses. Verse 14, by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This is the might of the cross, that Jesus was led like a lamb to slaughter, that his hands and feet were nailed to an executioner's stake. This is the foolishness of the cross. But the might of the cross is that God would forgive us of all of our trespasses, that that infinite weight of sin that that none of us in this room can, can push off of us through our works, through our actions, through our strivings, through our desire to be good people. The weight is too heavy upon us. And there's only one who could could bear that infinite burden. There's only one who could bear the weight of your sin and my sin. There's no creature that can do that. There's no angelic messenger that can do that. There's no great teacher that can do that. The only one who could bear that weight is God himself. And the message of the cross is, is that God himself took upon himself the very penalty of our sins. And he himself has atoned through his son, so that you who are far from God can be made close to God. This is the power of the cross, that God has forgiven us of our sins, and he's made us who were dead, alive. And while our trespasses and our sins, they they seek to pull us. We actually have a freedom because we've been made alive together with him, and that power It takes the worst day of human history, the death of the Son of God on Friday, and transforms it into the most miraculous day of his resurrection that Sunday after. That resurrection power, good news, lives in you. That resurrection power, good news, Christian, lives in you. Now, I know it feels really far from your experience. But we need to be reminded of these truths sometimes that through the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of the resurrection is in you. And so there's still a battle, and there is still an enemy. Satan, the flesh, sin, this world, and and he he prowls about, and he seeks to confuse us, and to accuse us, and to strip us. But I want you to hear that as Satan prowls about, and he shoots bullets against you, all of those bullets are blanks because he's been defeated. He has been defeated. He is a conquered foe, and this is good news that the power of the resurrection lives in you. It lives in me. It lives in each and every one of us who have turned to him by faith. This is the power of Jesus at work in your life. The first church I ever served, I remember vividly going over to a house of one of our church members and she, for years, had, had prayed so much for the freedom of, of one of her sons to, to come out of drug addiction. And many of you have walked this road. And, and many of you, this is not hypothetical. And you, you know how heinous that journey can be. You could you could see as she could see, she could look back upon life and, and she could see him going through different programs and coming out of those programs and having having good days ahead and good weeks ahead and good months ahead. But he would he would relapse and he would seem to go further back for every step he took further, he would take three steps back, back into that lifestyle, back into that addiction. For any parent that has walked that road, it is it is a painful road. To walk, and she had walked it for years and years and years. And I remember her looking at me, and she just said, David, you know, I just think now that he is just too far gone. And that phrase, that phrase has just haunted me. There's a follower of Jesus that there could be a situation or a person that is just too far gone. That, 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 that there's no prospects that are hopeful in front of you. That, that, that there could be any situation that is just too far gone. Now, I know from a human perspective exactly what she's saying. And for those of you that have walked that road, I am sure that you know intimately what she's saying. That from her ability, there's no hope. That from her trying and striving, there's, there's no future. I, I get that. But what we're here to describe this morning is a mighty God who we worship. A mighty God who who comes in the midst of hopeless situations. And while his son is dead on Friday, there is hope because of Resurrection Sunday is right around the corner. And if you're here this morning, I want to give you an invitation to retire in your spirit or to retire in your language, to retire in your heart, that phrase, this person is too far gone. This situation is too far gone. Now, no, I know some of you are here. And I I know that you're here and you've been praying for a prodigal son, a prodigal granddaughter to come home from a foreign land and you, you know she's a follower of Jesus, but she's been living it up in that foreign land for years and you've been praying that she would come to her senses and in your heart, you're waiting at the doorstep, you're watching for her to come across the horizon and you got a fatty calf and you're ready to throw the party and you wait and you wait and you wait and I know at the core of you, you think, maybe this situation is just too far gone. But I ask you, is there anything too hard for your God? I know that there's some of you that have been walking with Jesus for a long time and you've got a situation with a friend or a family member and you're just, you're just, you just go at each other. And you want to to reconcile. You want to take steps. But it just seems for every step that you take, you get further away from one another. And there's been so much water that has come up under the bridge of that relationship that it has just knocked the bridge out. And from your stand, standpoint and from your vantage point, there just really is not a whole lot of hope. This situation, you think, is too far gone. And I know from your situation and your vantage point, you might believe that. But I have to ask you, is there anything too hard for your mighty God? I know that there's some of you that have been walking with Jesus for a long time. And on Monday morning, you, you walk back into the tentacles of that sin and by that afternoon, there's conviction that comes upon you. You confess that sin and you repent from it. But by Tuesday, you're right back there. And you've, you've gone through that cycle again and again and again. And now you're here to say, you know, I think that's just who I am. This situation, freedom from this, just it is just, it's just too far gone. Is there anything too hard for your mighty God? I know that there's some of you that are here and and, and you know what it is to sit in that that room and to have that doctor to, to give you a diagnosis that just is a gut punch and it takes your breath away. And you're fearful in that moment to think if you've received that or a loved one that they're too far gone, but I'm here to remind you that we have a God who heals on earth and he heals always in eternity. Is there anything too hard for your Mighty God. If you grew up in a Baptist church, maybe this is true of Presbyterian churches and Methodist churches, but I know if you've, you've walked through the, the v, Vacation Bible School, Kid Life world of Dawson and others, that, that somewhere down the line somebody taught you a song. Our God is so big, so strong, and so mighty. There is nothing that our God cannot do. It's like a locomotive train leaves the station slowly and gathers steam. Our God is so big, so strong, and so mighty, there's nothing that our God cannot do. Our God is so big, so strong, and so mighty, there's nothing that our God cannot do. I think it's easy for us to sing that song. I think all of us can know it's sometimes hard to believe the words of that song. Your God is so big. He's so strong and He's so mighty. There is nothing that your God cannot do. Amen.